Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 175 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center, University of Texas. Today is Thursday, July 30th, 2020, though almost not much longer. We're recording this kind of late. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Lodick. Bobby, today's been quite a month. <laughs> today's been, even by the standards of this season of the show, uh, and by show, I mean uh, the, the, the Trump show, this has been a doozy. Wow, uh, the showrunners really started off strong today with a long expected and speculated about, but still dramatic plot point revelation where they had Trump come out and explicitly suggest that we just might need to quote, delay the election. We will pile on. We, we, have, we have some thoughts. <laughs> we have thoughts to share. Um, that's not the only slice of Trump landia for us tonight. We've got a follow-up from last week. Michael Cohen does indeed get to both stay home and write books. No surprise there. Um, what else? Well, another recurring guest, Mike Flynn. Not so fast on the uh, end of that case, says the D.C. Circuit. We'll touch base with Mike Flynn. As, We're going to go as, back to as, Portland. As, as predicted here first, the D.C. Circuit is going on bonk. I'm shocked. Aren't you shocked? I'm shocked and shocked. The gambling in Casablanca. I know. Uh, we've got an, we'll, we'll go back to Portland to kind of follow up on last week's commentary and, and j- at least air some of the, the recent developments. And then a story late breaking tonight in the Washington Post from our friend Shane Harris uh, that at least indirectly touches on you, Steve. Um, and uh, the DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis, they've got thoughts and they're sharing them and they're mentioning people. Uh, we'll talk about what that's all about. Um, and then maybe some actual national security law. We've got uh, another theme of recent weeks, the Hassoun case. Uh, we finally actually got an, uh, a spelled out decision from the Second Circuit. Meanwhile, Hassoun's living in, drum roll, Rwanda. Yeah, I, I think I think that that's why the Second Circuit decided to write 25 pages about a case that is almost certainly moot is is one of the many puzzles of the opinion that was handed down this morning. Well, By the way, the way you said Rwanda reminded me of Book of Mormon. Your mission is to Uganda. <laughs> oh my goodness! Now also we've got uh, we've got some appointments or vacancy stuff. Because it wouldn't be a week in Trumplandia without some kind of vacancies issue. Well, ain't that the truth? All right, who do we have this time? Uh, Anthony, I have no idea how. Is it, is, I don't know if it's Tata or Tata or whatever, but in honor of former Major League Baseball umpire Terry Tata, I'm going with Tata until, as, I, as, as I'm sure folks will correct me, uh, folks correct me. And, and the baseball reference is especially Jermaine, Bobby, because as we sit here, I'm watching the Mets. They're on, uh, they're on national television. So you managed to get a TV in the room with you. I'm having to like look at ESPN, but you know what? It's like the first time I've looked at ESPN in a long time. I know, and there's live basketball on too. When the Mets is o- when the Mets game is over, I can go yeah, watch the Clippers and the Lakers. To the battle of two teams, I really don't like. Oh, Conforto. Sorry. Yep. All right. So the <laughs> Mets and the Sox are in the ninth. We'll spoil that for you later, and we'll talk. They're a not in the bit. ninth. Are they in the ninth? They're the bottom of the eighth, bottom of the eighth. I was going to say, unless, unless ESPN's ahead of the live Fox feed, there's first and third with one out in the eighth. You have the advantage of TV, man. You're, <laughs> and you've always got a t- you have a, What is it tuned to, Steve? Uh, Fox. Of course, always in your house, right? Not Fox News. Those are very different <laughs> things. Fox Sports Southwest? Uh, just Fox. It's National Fox. Yep. Uh, anyways, uh, we will touch base with the opening of Major League and NBA seasons. 
And then just because we previously uh, shared our great love for the Watchmen uh, series, and at one point thought, I think we, we blasted the Emmys for somehow incredibly. <laughs> how could you Emmys? How could you not nominate them? And my friends, if you've doubted the power of this in the reach of this podcast. I know, look at us. Rest, rest all doubts. Uh, they've corrected their, their error. Uh, the, the Emmys, of course, are considering Watchmen this year, not last year. And uh, indeed, they're leading all nominations with 26. So we'll, we'll handicap the Emmys while we're at it. Um, you know, enjoy the Emmys now because they probably are going to be quite so interesting next year. Uh, best rerun in the sitcom category. <laughs> uh, right. Best best live from home television show. Maybe they can finally get around to somehow encompassing podcasts. I mean, I know Emmy's a TV medium, but somebody's got to take us. Meanwhile, with the tie and run on third and one out, Michael Conforto just swung past a fastball right down the middle to strike out. So they're now That's two right, outs in the bottom of the eighth. Conforto's been pretty darn good the first few games here. Um, that would have been a nice time to continue that being good. Would have been. Would have been. All right, so let's start with uh, delaying the election because I, I have one or one or, or 47 thoughts. Let's start with the bread and butter. Um, uh, let's talk about the various ways in which the president – let's just make clear what is obvious to us and, and I think to anyone who knows about the law on this issue, but it's scary if you don't know this. Steve, does the president have any legal authority – we'll set aside what he might try to do nonetheless, but does he have any legal authority to change the date of the election? And no, the, the, the date of the presidential election is set by U, Congress by statute. It's in 3 U.S.C. Section 1. Um, it's been set ever since 1845, and it is yeah. the first Tuesday in November. We, uh, we managed to I'm do sorry, this. The, as, wait, the first Tuesday after the first Monday after, in November. Right. So, yeah, you don't want to start off on it. You don't want to start the month with one of these. Uh, we managed to do this during the Civil War. We managed to do it all other times. I mean, not only did we manage to do it during the Civil War, there's a, there's a Lincoln quote. And you, you, know the whole, you know the whole meme about how, like, every Lincoln quote on the internet is fake? I did not know that, but I can believe it. So I just assume every a, quote on the internet is fake. Well, there's also that. So there's a whole, there's, I mean, notwithstanding the, link, the meme about Lincoln quotes, I want to find, Michael Beschloss um, tweeted this earlier today. I want to find it because it's such a, it's so Lincoln. Um, we can, quote, we cannot have free government without elections. And if the rebellion could force us to forego or postpone a national election, it might fairly claim to have already conquered and ruined us. Abraham Lincoln, 1864. Excellent quote. Good job, um, Abe. So, 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 but, but can I just, because, so Trump didn't just tweet that we should delay the election, Bobby. He also tweeted that we should know the result on election night. And so let me sort of do the, the four-minute elevator pitch version of how. Wait, let me ask real quick, because I didn't, I didn't see that one. I, I try not to look at his tweets, but I obviously saw the election one. I know that in the election delay, question mark, question mark, question mark tweet, he, he denounced mail-in voting, drawing a, a weird distinction somehow between that and absentee ballots. Um, was there a subsequent tweet saying that we need yes. to have the answers that night? Must know election results on the night of the election, not days, months, or even years later. Mm -hmm. All, All right. right. So, so let me just do, let me do the law first and then let me do why I'm so pissed at everybody. Um, so, so the law first. So by federal law, election day is the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November, which this year is November 3rd. Um, as I think, I hope everybody knows when we actually vote either on or before election day, since states are allowed to, uh, to have early voting and Texas, for example, does, 
we're actually technically voting for presidential electors, right? We're voting for the people who are going to be in the electoral college and then vote for our people in the national election. Um, right. There is no requirement anywhere that a state complete its tabulation and certify its results on election day. The reason why we're used to knowing the answer on election night is because more often than not, um, the race is sufficiently not close that based on projections and exit polls, uh, the media is able to project the outcome of the election even before any state has formally certified its results. In fact, federal law gives states, now here's where things get a little squishy, at least, Bobby, 35 days um, from election day to count their ballots, to tabulate their votes, to certify their results. Um, it creates the, the so-called Electoral Count Act of 1887 creates this thing called the Safe Harbor Deadline, which basically says, hey, state, if you get your act together and count all your votes and resolve any challenges by 35 days after election day, we guarantee you that your result will be conclusive in Congress. That is to say, that will the safe harbor is you will therefore be immune from having the result questioned by Congress. Um, of course, missing the safe harbor deadline does not mean the result is therefore pointless. It just you, you just lose the protection. This is what Bush versus Gore was all about, right, in 2000. Um, it's 35 days, Bobby, because the Electoral Count Act of 1887 says it's six days before the Electoral College meets. And the Electoral College meets 41 days um, after Election Day, which this year is Monday, December 14th, at which point the electors cast their votes. That's still not the end of the matter, right? And then Congress meets on January 6th to count the electoral votes. And if and only if when Congress meets on January 6th to count the electoral votes, someone has a majority, so 270 or more, then that's the end of the matter. Otherwise, it goes to the House. Like, none of this is in dispute. None of this is subject to interpretation, um, right? I, what did Pompeo said something preposterous this morning. He said, uh, Pompeo at a hearing uh, in, asked about the president's tweet, said, in the end, the Department of Justice and others will make that legal determination. No, Mr. Secretary, Congress has made the legal determination. There's lots of mischief that could happen if states don't certify their results by the safe harbor deadline. But short of that, the process is clear beyond peradventure. I, I think it's I think you're right that it is perfectly clear. I don't think the game here is is really to suggest that that's actually in question. It's a totally different game, right? This no, the is, game is to delegitimize is, the results. It's to preemptively delegitimize the results. And it's, it's actually a twofer, I would say. So there's, there's that. But there's also the fact that today's, obviously, the pandemic news is terrible every day in this country, but also the economic news, which yes. is closer to the- Pretty terrible economic news this morning about the GNP, right. about unemployment, about new jobless claims, about inflate the, you know, everything. Right. So there's, there's terrible economic news. And, and quite effectively, the president with, uh, you know, a little bit of tweeting- uh, blocked that out, you know, eclipsed the sun in the news cycle. So there, you know, we should never look past the uh, the rhetorical uses of Twitter to change what the headline stories are and to what, you know, to get the oxygen in the room to be consumed by some other story. Look, I don't think we should blabber too much except to pause here and say that um, there there is obviously a, a deeper legal issue involving 
um, whether there are things that are not directly attempts um, that are not directly attempts to delay the election, but could functionally in some way or fashion gum up the works in a way that could have that effect, practically speaking. So, so I think that for all people who are concerned, which should be everybody, um, the interesting question is, all right, what are the mechanisms that are realistically within the influence range of the White House that could cause those sorts of practical problems? And um, so I, I, yeah, do you have I, some I agree, ideas? I, I agree with everything you just said. I just don't think that's it. Like, I would add a second thing that I don't want to lose before we move on. But, but, to, but to this point, right? Um, so I, I think there are two different sets of concerns here. One is that Trump uses the machinery of the federal government to try to gum up the works on election day, right? That, you know, he sends a whole, he, he uses the Insurrection Act, right, to send troops into different cities. Or, um, you know, he declares a national emergency and tries to freeze transportation. Or like, you know, that he really sort of tries to pull something really like shady. High, highly overt yes. uh, physical interference with the ability of people to get to the polls right. in a swing state. I'm, I am not worried. I am not as worried about that as the more um, sort of, covert um laying the groundwork for individual state legislators and governors in tipping point states to question the authenticity of results if you have this like late shift because of late arriving and late counted you know absentee ballots right where like imagine that trump goes to bed ahead in i don't know wisconsin right and wakes up or like three days later when a surge of overseas absentee ballots comes right, in, falls behind, falls behind. Right. Um, and so this is, this is why I want to raise the second point, which is, you know, I think it is as incumbent upon those who are generally supporters of the president to denounce this nonsense as it has been anything to this point in his presidency because the only way this gets legs is if there are people validating it, right? Is if there are endorsers and if there are people who are like, well, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we got to worry about these mail-in ballots and, you know, what, what, it's a problem if they're only counted 26 days later. Like, you know, that, that's my, and so this is why I've been pretty, you know, sort of aggressive today um, as one of Karen's friends DM'd her, um, unusually sassy on Twitter was the, was the, um, about like looking at how Republicans are responding to this. Um, and Bobby, I've actually been to some degree heartened, um, that most of the senior congressional Republican leadership has said, this is, you know, we're not delaying the election. We're having the election. The election will happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've seen a number of quotes like that. At the risk of, 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 of saying something you're not going to like hearing, um, there's one glaring exception, and it is the senior senator of our state. Um, because what Cornyn said um, to multiple reporters um, is that, you know, I don't know why you guys are taking this seriously. Obviously, it was a joke. Um, I, I'm sorry. You know, one, Trump was not joking, right? And two, um, dismiss, you know, trying to downplay the significance of the president openly, you know, questioning the legitimacy of the election um, is just not something that the Senate majority whip should be doing, um, no matter his politics, no matter his ties to the president. Well, I will, I will agree with you that, that John should have more directly 
he shouldn't have tried to pass this off as something that may have been a joke because I think it's clear from the context it wasn't. Even though Trump in the past has tried to uh, make such a move, I don't think that it was plausible to say that here by, by Cornyn. So I, I'm disappointed in that. Uh, and I agree with you that for the most part, nonetheless, there has been um, pretty clear and unequivocal insistence the election will go off as planned. Um, and so I, I, even, I, even, but just even to come Steve back to your Calabresi. point earlier, what's that? Did you see Steve Calabresi's piece? Yeah, I thought that, I did see that um, Steve Calabresi, who, is, who has been pretty quick to defend a lot of stuff that I don't think is fit for conservatives to defend, nonetheless, did come out like this got to him. This like really in, in like, so, now, now we should impeach him. Well, look, I think a lot of people are piling on Steve and I totally understand it saying like, you know, well, where were you before? Totally true. But I'm glad to see, and I think especially voices that have been defending Trump pretty consistently across issues, it's especially valuable to your point just now to have those voices roundly denouncing, saying, what, this? No, you cannot flirt with delay of the election. That's not okay. And it's more meaningful when Calabresi does it than when somebody like me who's been never Trump since 2015 or, you know, since I first thought it was serious, people were talking about this in a way that might actually lead him into office. Listen, um, it's no surprise if I denounce it. It's more surprising and therefore more useful if Calabresi does. I certainly agree that, I, that it's better that Steve Calabresi is denouncing it than not. Um, what I worry about, um, you know, the cynic in me, Bobby, can't help but wonder if, um, you know, these are people jumping off of a sinking ship, right? If this is not some deep principled, I've seen the light, um, right? And no, rather think- it's just, I've seen the poll numbers. There's, I don't know about that. And I, I, I think we should take it at face value that what he said is what he meant. And, and to your point, this, I think we all agree, like this is one of the most extreme and dangerous things yet that we've seen out of him. So it's not illogical to me that some of his erstwhile defenders would come out against him. I do want to, I do want to give John Cornyn uh, credit where credit is due. He has subsequent statements. There's one quote in the Dallas Morning News I just saw. Uh, the quote is, obviously, he doesn't have the power to do that. So I don't want to leave the impression that he's just sort of blew the joke off and that was it. He shouldn't have said it or blew it off as a joke and that was it. He did come around and issue a clear statement, it seems. Um, but to your point earlier that the, the, the real danger here, of course, is that the table's being set as a matter of narrative preparation for what will later be claims that are not about delaying the election, which is frankly very easy to fend off because it's it's crazy. There's no way for the president to just delay the election, at least not legally speaking. It's a much tougher situation when the morning after the election or the days after, as you just described it quite, quite correctly and, and scarily, Steve, uh, when he starts calling into question and denouncing the legitimacy of the vote. And then it's not a question of somebody making a legal claim that can be shown to be manifestly wrong. It's a characterization of the facts, which I don't doubt would be wrong as well, but now you no longer have this clear violation of a statute. Instead, you have this attempt to spread uh, disinformation. And we know from the experience of the past three and a half years how terribly difficult that problem is. So it is good that people pile on to try to wave the president off of this, don't even try to go there, but I don't think it's enough because I think the really harmful thing that you've anticipated, even if he never says a word about delaying the election, he can he can still cause that same harm after the election. So this is why this is why I mean you know you and I I think we've 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 gone we, we've we've tread this territory before about how you are more willing to give people the benefit of the doubt than I am. 
Um, and this is why I don't buy Cornyn's subsequent statement. Like, you know, saying he doesn't have the legal power to do it does not actually address what is so problematic about the tweet. Um, whereas, let me, let me, you know, without, without making this up, let me tell you how you, you know, let me tell you how a principled Republican did respond. So here is Chris Sununu, right, who is the governor of New Hampshire, um, and who, Bobby, I think I can say without getting into too much trouble, um, is no one's idea of like a, a sort of a, um, a hyper-liberal, you know, I mean, you know, he's not... I, I, I assume this is John Sununu's son. I actually yes. don't know any. I don't know anything about him. I think that's right. Um, so this so is my the, apologies this, to our New Hampshire listener. This is the Republican governor of New Hampshire, um, and here's what he tweeted: um, like twenty, like, you know, an hour and a half after Trump. Make no mistake, colon, the election will happen in New Hampshire on November third. End of story. Our voting system in New Hampshire is secure, safe, and reliable. We have done it right a hundred percent of the time for a hundred years. This year will be no different. That is the message every politician should be sending right now. That not only is the election going to happen, but that like elections are generally reliable. And it is not appropriate to be questioning the legitimacy of the election in advance. That, that is what a leader says in a context like this. That sounded like a great quote. Look, yeah. I don't... I don't want to go back and forth trying to figure out, you know, what I know. I'm just, I'm just I'm saying like, like, but this is why I think the two points are matter because it's not enough to say, of course, he doesn't have the legal power to do that. No one honestly believes that he does. Right. The problem right. is that the, the issue is not, can he delay the election? The issue is how do we build the narrative where it will be harder for him to wake up on the morning of number fourth and contest the legitimacy of a result where he lost. I couldn't agree more. Okay. So, that's not the only item today in Trumplandia. True. Uh, let's back up a couple of days. Michael Cohen's going to get to stay home and still write the book. Um, I'm not sure how much there is to say about this. It's it's as we expected. There there is. Um, so what exactly happened was Judge Hellerstein in New York um, listened to. I guess was it a TRO, Steve? Yeah. Yeah. So the procedural posture was a temporary restraining order application. Um, or in any event, something along those lines. Um, and he drew the conclusion that there's really no way to explain what happened here. My, my understanding is there was no direct evidence put into the record showing that some sort of directed directive was given to basically create this special condition just for Michael Cohen to try to keep him from uh, trashing Trump and his book or otherwise with the media. Uh, but rather it was a circumstantial case where for Hellerstein, the clinching point was that uh, in all his decades of experience with this sort of thing, he'd never seen a term like this before. Um, and I've seen other people try to suggest that's not the case. I, I don't, I don't have practice experience in that area. Do you think judge Hellerstein's in a pretty good position to know about this sort of deal? Yep. In any event, he drew the inference and, um, and that was it. Michael Cohen gets to uh, do it the way he wanted to, does not have to report back to jail. What do you think? Do you think this is best explained as actual explicit White House or Attorney General pressure that got squeezed down into the system to the point where this condition was put into Cohen's agreement by the by the uh, court system authorities that manage the conditions and present the conditions for supervised release, or is it or is it instead more of a uh, leaderless sort of thing where the people who actually put the condition in were sympathetic maybe to the to the president in this hostile to Cohen 
and kind of came up with this on their own? I mean, we don't have direct evidence on the point. But what do you think is more likely? I don't know, but I'd sure like to know the answer. Yeah, it does. It kind of calls for some further inquiry, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, because because I mean, my, you know, my sense is that this kind of condition, while not unheard of, is a bit unusual. Um, it seems like the sort of thing that the further litigation with Cohen is not going to shed light on. It seems like based on how this has turned out, unless unless the uh, government appeals this decision, which I don't think they're doing, maybe they will. Uh, and that suggests a need for congressional investigation, doesn't it? Yep, I agree. If, if one thinks that that's what really happened here, then that sounds like a judiciary committee matter. Of course, we've seen the judiciary committee in action this week. I don't know if any of us want to watch any more of that. Um, or maybe a lot of us do. I don't know. I guess in a, in a day when no TV programming is uh, newly available, uh, reality TV, there's not much more excitement than having the Judiciary Committee. I mean, especially when the Attorney General of the United States says there's no such thing as peaceful resistance. I thought you were going to go with uh, the bit about foreign, foreign election interference. Well, there's also that. Um, I listened to the, you know, Lawfare does a really signal service yeah. by taking hearings like this. And I, I haven't actually lifted a finger to figure out who is it that's actually doing this cutting and pasting but whoever it is god bless you they they trim it all down so if you listen to it on high speed you can you can get all the substantive content for these painfully long and digressive hearings you can get it all like like in an hour listen to so i I listened to it that way and i must say if that was the edited version right i would hate to have watched that whole thing live i mean i'll put it this way i mean i I don't think I, i think plenty of members did not use their time effectively but don't you think i i, I think yes. it's so funny how often members and maybe we're just judging them by a different standard than they are judging they know what they know what benefits them so they choose to use their time in ways that sure doesn't often shed good light on the record but i'm also going to say but i don't think bar i i, mean, I, I don't th- i you know i think in some respect that might have saved bar from himself um because i thought his answers were evasive in some respects mendacious um, in some respects, hard to take at face value. I mean, I just, yeah. You know, he rose in, like, like any long testimony situation, he had his, his uh, stronger and weaker moments. I thought when he, he did best when he was talking about, let's talk a little bit about Portland because it'll be relevant to that. He did best when he was talking about Operation Legend and talking about the violent crime programs, which I do think are getting unhelpfully mixed up in the Portland story, which is primarily, though not exclusively, a DHS story. And I, I get it that drawing these institutional and legal nuances uh, sometimes doesn't make for great copy. Uh, and so the, the public at large often is, is really not that interested in hearing about the difference between, you know, Bill Barr saying that he's sending these personnel to Chicago or something, and, and then uh, Chad Wolf talking about his personnel in Portland. But I actually think that really, really matters. And in a lot of things relating to Trump, you can have a situation like Portland where what DHS have been doing and their tactics being used were so clearly problematic and subject to criticism. And then there's a, there's a danger, I think, of losing the, uh, the import of that line of critique by trying to extend it lock, stock, and barrel to the extension of a, a couple dozen uh, ATF, DEA, U.S. Marshal Service, and FBI agents to existing state federal partnered violent crime enforcement units that are not going to in any way have anything to do with protests or otherwise, but that are about um, gang investigations and shooting investigations. And but, like. but, but, but in, in that respect, Bobby, the federal government shot itself in the foot because if that had been all they were doing in Portland all along, 
right? And if there wasn't this huge visible show of force with CBP officers who aren't trained to do any of that, right? If this had just been HSI, if this had just been, you know, the core of what Barr was describing, I don't think you would see nearly, I don't think you would see nearly the kind of reaction that it provoked. I, I think I might not have been clear because I think we're now talking past each other. My whole point is what's going on in Portland is a huge deal. And what DHS is doing there with these various units that are not trained and are not apparently, uh, at least possibly not engaging in, in law enforcement arrest in any way, in ways that are entirely compatible with the Fourth Amendment, it sure seems like that, uh, and using other tactics that are deeply problematic, all of that should be the focus. And when people hear that, okay, there's also this other thing, Operation Legend, there's more units going out. Um, but when it turns out what Operation Legend is, is it's not the Portland operation. Right. It's this other thing. Right. I think people are ready to pile onto that, and they shouldn't. I think it weakens the line of criticism involving Portland. Um, in any event, so the Portland update is that uh, a, reportedly yesterday, the state of Oregon and DHS cut a deal. And it's kind of funny because as soon as it was announced, it was described differently by the principals. So this, the deal uh, basic outlines are that DHS will withdraw the CBP and ICE special tactics teams that have been operating outside the courthouse, which is the most controversial layer of all of this, that they'll remove them. First, they'll remove them from the scene of the courthouse immediately today, and then tomorrow we'll send them out of the city um, in exchange for the Oregon State Police stepping up to perform that external to the courthouse security function for the courthouse. Um, so Oregon touted this, you know, immediately Oregon authorities were touting this as a victory, but then DHS almost immediately came out and said like, whoa, whoa, we're not going anywhere unless it turns out over time that we don't need to be there anymore because of what's going on. Uh, this strikes me as one of those examples where the agreement papered over some uh, differences over the exact degree of certainty that are necessary in order to bless the Oregon State Police effort as sufficient. And no doubt on paper, it basically says something kind of generic about that. The Oregon authorities feel like that's your, that's your ticket out of here, uh, DHS, go. And DHS feels that, no, under that same standard, we get to stay and watch and wait and see. Um, one really, really hopes that whatever the conditions are, the DHS will conclude that the Oregon State Police are providing adequate security and this incredibly provocative situation can get diffused by the withdrawal from Portland of these, of these personnel. It uh, doesn't mean that there's not still uh, federal protective service and US Marshals inside the building, but my understanding of the deal is that they're supposed to stay inside the building and the Oregon State Police will handle the, the perimeter. Uh, now this pretty quickly I would imagine will, will expose that the line between the, uh, the more aggressive protesters who come out late at night and, and come to the federal courthouse in particular the line between them and the government isn't just a line about the federal presence. It's, it's probably going to become pretty apparent quickly that whether it's Portland police or Oregon state police, if they start clearing these protesters are out using, you know, uh, tear gas or what have you, they're going to become the object of criticism anyways. But I think it's got to help to get the provocative CBP and ice presence out of the picture. I think that's right. Um, I also, you know, there's there's one slightly cynical piece of this, which is um, I think there was a, a much stronger lawsuit filed against a lot of what was happening in Portland on Monday, where most of the claims are for prospective relief. 
And so there's also the prospect that like now that they're being sued in a case that actually might force courts to get to the merits, um, the government's a little more trigger shy. But, you know, listen, I'm, I'm all for anything that is about de-escalation. I just think that, um, you know, I, I, it's not yet clear to me what the lessons are that we're going to take away from Portland because there's still such a gap between um, the sort of the critical narrative and the government narrative right? That, that it seems to me the two things can be true, that there was a core of authority the government was exercising in Portland that was perfectly legitimate and appropriate, and a whole lot of stuff that was really sketchy. Yeah, I, I mean, that's kind of my view. I did a, a podcast uh, we recorded yesterday, it just dropped a few hours ago from National Constitution Center, where me and John Anazi were on with Jeff Rosen. It was a great conversation, and we'll circulate the link later. But um, my basic take is that there's, it's crystal clear that there is, in fact, legal authority, of course, for federal protective service personnel from DHS to be uh, protecting the grounds. And it's also clear that DHS has the authority to shift personnel from other units uh, to sort of second them to the federal protective service the exact same way in DC. We previously noted uh, DOJ personnel were seconded from the Bureau of Prisons, for example, to work under US Marshal Service authority in a sort of a similar capacity. Um, the, that's, that's not really in dispute. There, there's, a, there's a law reform question about whether that should really be an option. Um, it's, I think that gets complicated. Would you really take that entirely off the table if you weren't thinking about this particular president? I don't know. Um, but it seems to me the real issues have to do not so much with the availability of those personnel, um, but with questions of training, questions of oversight, do the relevant authorities, including the people in charge of these organizations, truly understand run-of-the-mill probable cause for street arrest? Do they understand use of force in the middle of an American city involving uh, a constitutionally protected gathering that may indeed, and I think clearly in Portland at night at times, definitely has involved violence. So I don't think that should be uh, sugarcoated. But nonetheless, that doesn't mean, therefore, anything goes in the response of the government agents protecting the building. Questions about whether any uh, reforms are needed to limit in terms of time or location where the arrest authority of these DHS personnel should extend. Um, I think this, in fact, I think the number one thing this episode has really highlighted is the latent uh, uncertainty about what the scope of that is once you get a situation like you have here where the government says, hey, it was a federal property protective uh, reason for me to be in a particular place. I witnessed a crime, or at least I think I witnessed a crime, but I couldn't effectuate the arrest right then. So we're going to wait, and then we're going to catch that person down the road some ways. I mean, can it be uh, two states away and three months later? Maybe the answer is yes, maybe the answer is no, but that should be something that's thought about very deliberately and carefully spelled out. So that's, to me, what, what Portland has highlighted so much. You know, we don't have these debates about state and local, well, we have some version of these debates, I guess, about state and local law enforcement. But in general, when you're talking about run-of-the-mill law enforcement agencies, um, there are all sorts of structures, whatever their weaknesses are, that lead to scrutiny and to training in advance and to well-established rules about how force is used, et cetera. And it's just not clear that CVP and ICE um, work in that same way. And yet they have been shown in this instance to, you can put them in a position where they can exercise a lot of law enforcement authority. Problematic. Uh, there's, we said earlier, there's a story that at least indirectly involves you, Steve. Uh, one of the funny things about this sort of repurposing of DHS organizations to support what, what we'll describe as the sort of the, the federal property mission, 
was, as we noted last week, this, this curious thing that you and Ben Wittes wrote about where it was leaked to y'all that um, there was an, a DHS, uh, I guess you'd say it was a, not a, it was not a classified document for sure. It was a, for official use only, which just means like they didn't want it out there. Um, at the Office of Intelligence and Analysis, the, DO, the DHS Intelligence Analytic Shop. And it basically talked about how they've been put on the um, analysis mission for people who are threats to monuments as well as federal property. And we talked about that last week. So now there's a story tonight from Shane Harris in the Washington Post indicating that uh, intelligence and analysis, that same shop, has now circulated a document around to a bunch of, a bunch of its customers, uh, basically like calling out Ben Wittes by name as the, the guy from Lawfare and, and a reporter from the New York Times, names escaping me. Uh, for whatever reason, it does not name you, my friend. I don't know what that's all about. They're protecting. So I, th- I think I, I actually I, I just read the story. I, I think the reason why I got spared is because even though Ben and I um, broke together the original memo, um, the specific thing that they were objecting to that Ben did was the subsequent um, anti-leak oh, the of- email. Ben literally posted the image into onto Twitter, whereas ah, I see. whereas I, see. I don't believe that the memo, the existence of which we disclosed, has actually been been leaked in in toto publicly. So I think that the so the question Shane is raising in the piece is uh, is this a uh, improper action by an intelligence analytic agency because it focuses on and in effect draws attention to two named U.S. persons, journalists uh, in this capacity, no less. And um, it's kind of an interesting question because, you know, Ben's quote in the piece, it's pretty funny. He basically says, my, my only objection is that they didn't link to the tweet when they wrote about me. Um, I, I suppose, you know, the DHS position is, of course, it's appropriate to be able to identify the consequences of, of a, what was an unauthorized leak. It wasn't classified, it wasn't illegal in that sense, but presumably somebody did something that at least was a violation of, of what you might describe as the, uh, the departmental policies. Um, so is it wrong to identify by name the sources? If, you, if the right way to think about what DHS O&I, uh, INA had done here is that it was in effect identifying Ben and the other reporter as persons of interest in some sense, I think that is problematic, or at least it it's opens the door to something very problematic. And, and I would think probably at least in some tension with, if not an outright violation of relevant uh, rules and regulations relating to minimization of U.S. personal identities, and for that matter, just the entire scope of the INA mission. Uh, if instead it's more descriptive of the larger story of someone on the inside leaking official documentation. Um, I suppose that's, that's less problematic. Uh, any final thoughts on, on your part since you were a near miss in that story? I just, I just continue to think that, that given everything that's going on in the world today, the notion that this is what DHS is prioritizing, you know, in a different time might have actually been a scandal. And I just hope that we don't have like a 9-11 commission-like hearing at some point in the future where it comes back to really bite us that this is what DHS was spending its time doing. Well, I'll tell you, if, if and when, so you, you and I both kind of came up working on terrorism-related issues. 
I certainly have been, I've been so struck over the past year or two and have mentioned on the show from time to time how struck I am by how, how much the terrorism topic has receded into the background. Uh, and, and in part because we've had, we've had great counterterrorism success and the, the pace and, and scale of, of terrorist attacks within the United States that involve the foreign intelligence mission and the foreign intelligence apparatus, the domestic topic's a different one I recognize, uh, ha- has been a relatively favorable story of the past few years compared to how it was before that, but it's gonna come back. And I do think that there's a high likelihood that something horrific will happen uh, not that far in the future, and it will cause under a different administration, under a different Congress, um, as always, there's always a retrospective, a 9-11 commission type investigation. Um, I have no doubt the Trump administration will not come off looking good. And this, this will be a very small piece of that. I think there'll be many other things that'll be bad for it. Um, all right, Mike Flynn. Mike Flynn thought he was out. But just when he thought he was out, they're, they're pulling him back in. What happened? So um, this morning, in the middle of all this nonsense, um, the D.C. Circuit issued an order um, in which it announced that it was uh, that it had agreed somewhat, somewhat cryptically, Bobby, the order says we've agreed to take this case on bond. It did not actually say we have granted Judge Sullivan's petition, um, which I think is a very clever way of avoiding the question that both Flynn and the Justice Department raised about whether Sullivan even had um, they called it standing, whatever you want to call it, whether he was a proper party to ask the court to rehear the case on bond. This paper's over the possibility because it holds up in the possibility this was sua sponte if it has to be that way. Right. And no one disputes that the Court of Appeals has the legal authority to rehear sua sponte. And so, like, so why why have the fight? Right. So, right off the bat, right off the bat, they're like, you know what, guys? We're just hearing it either way. We're going to passive voice it. Um, which, it. by the way, you know my favorite use of passive voice in the history of the Supreme Court. Mistakes were made. No. <laughs> when John Marshall is describing the facts of Marbury versus Madison. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. When he elides his own personal involvement. Right. He indeed. switches to passive voice to avoid referring to himself. The, the commissions, the com- mistakes were made, commissions were not delivered at, by some. At some. which point the great seal was affixed. Um, so, so I want to say just a couple of quick that. things about the order, because I think the order is instructive in two respects. First, um, the order actually doesn't just set the case for rehearing Bobby, but the order actually says, quote, the party should be prepared to address whether there are no other adequate means to attain the relief desired. Um, I have thought all along that this mandamus petition was borderline frivolous, um, because without saying a word about the merits, um, Judge Sullivan hasn't done anything yet. Right. And so it's not at all clear to me why, assuming he actually denies DOJ's motion to dismiss Flynn's criminal case, that wouldn't be the appropriate moment to seek a writ of mandamus. And so I, I take so this no brief be, on that possibility of saying, you know what, just send this back and let's see what actually happens. And that's the problem with Judge Rao's opinion is that like, you know, she renders the second prong of the two prong mandamus test completely pointless. It would be incredibly easy, I think, for eight at least, well, I'll, I'll say for eight, for all eight of the other active judges who will be participating besides Rao and Henderson to sign on to an opinion that says, we're not touching. Back. You know, we're not touching Rule 48. All we're saying is that this was too early for mandamus. Um, yeah, and that's going to be that, very tempting. And the fact that they went out of their way in the order to say yeah. all of that, I think is yeah. interesting. 
I um, think that's that's indicative. So they argue, they argued on August 11th. If there if there is a sort of a rush towards that that very appealing and and non controversial solution, what's the timetable here, and how does it relate to the election? Well, so then I mean, so first of all, it depends on how long it takes them to say that. Um, second, I assume judges Rao and Henderson would dissent. Right, um, right. So they'll slow it down. But third, they won't want to right, slow it down too much. Third, it goes back to Judge Sullivan, who may still want to, you know, Sullivan was in the middle of trying to get to the bottom of whether DOJ had acted in bad faith. He might want to finish that job. Um, but I should also say, Bobby, um, Judge Katsis is recused, which, of course, I think only, you know, um, whatever else you might say about the D.C. Circuit, I think Katsis was likely a vote who would be sympathetic to Flynn. Um, so that, that, that means that of the, of the 10 participating judges, um, eight, no, seven were appointed by Democratic presidents. Um, I don't think that augurs well for Mike Flynn. Um, but also, I mean, then the question is, would Flynn seek a cert petition? Right. Um, if, it, if, if the en banc is on, on the ground we've identified that, that, look, we don't have an action here, send this back to see what actually happens. To try to get, to try to get cert on that, I just don't see five votes for this. Do you, do you think that the court would go for this? Um, no, I don't. But I actually also think that Flynn is getting, um, I think Flynn's getting some bad advice. Um, because like, I, let, me, let me sort of, I tried to tweet this out. And I don't, I think it got a little bit, I think it got a little bit, a little bit garbled in on Twitter. Um, so <laughs> that does happen. If, if Flynn, I, I still believe Bobby, that Sullivan would have granted the motion to dismiss. He just would have made a big stink about it. That he would have, he would have, begru- he would have written an opinion where he excoriated DOJ. Right, but would, then he would, but then he'd defer. He'd defer. Had that happened, we'd be done because yeah. that wouldn't be appealable by anybody. Um, right. And the only reason why that, you know, what 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 stopped that train was Flynn's emergency petition for a mandamus. Otherwise, I think Sullivan would have dismissed the case right. by now. And, I mean, but, you know, it's, it's tough, right? Because he can't know for sure it's going to go that way. He might be terrified it's not going to go that way. No, but, then, but, 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 but I actually think, I mean, if I'm, if I'm a competent lawyer representing him, like, I actually think you take that chance also because that's the point at which you have such a good argument for mandamus. Like, you know, they, they drew a miraculously good panel, but they had, you know, but I also would have said, but then the DC, then you have to deal with the en banc court. So I just, I think the irony of all of this, because there's so much emotion about the Flynn case, the irony is that I actually think that this is now the worst case scenario for Flynn. Because for the first time, there's the prospect that this won't be resolved before January 20th. No, that's um, right. So I think he's on the pardon train at this point. Uh, if the president loses, Biden wins, then this will be hanging out there. There'll be too much uncertainty. And I, I don't doubt for a second that Trump will pardon him if it appears that the clock's going to run out. And it, it's not clear that by the time he left office that Flynn would be free and clear. Don't you think the pardon's almost inevitable in his case? Yeah, but there's a reason why Trump hasn't done that yet. You know, I think it's, well, sure, right, because, so first of all, there, there has proven to be at least some glimmer of a pathway out that would actually leave him without having to face, well, you were convicted, it stuck, but then you got pardoned. Right. Uh, this is more appealing to him. It seemed like it was going to work for a while. Now it's coming unwound. I think he'll play, he'll play the hand out until we get to the election, if and when it's clear that Trump has lost. I think then it's going to be one of many pardons. Indeed, I think that, you know, one of the most fascinating things about December and January going into February 
if it goes that way, will be just how broad a pardon net does Trump go? Because when you have a situation such as he has created, well, you really, you really can't have the other party coming in and criminally investigating you and your family and your businesses, can you, and your associates. I think that they're going to they're gonna blanket the field with these things, including the possibility of Trump trying out the old self-pardon. self indeed. Um, wait, do we, I, I'm sorry, I'm so tired that I totally lost the thread. Did we talk about Tata? We didn't. No, not yet. But let me just note that the Mets are trying to get the rally going here in the bottom of the ninth after having decided they needed it to be a little bit tougher by once again having bad relief pitching. Edwin that's Diaz. story of the year, right? So Edwin far. fracking Diaz. Um, you know the meme that was going around Twitter last week? Like I had a blank joke, but then something blew it. Like, you know, the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so my contribution was I had a Mets... I, I had, a, I had, a, I had a, a Mets joke, but Edwin Diaz blew it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you got some love for that. That's pretty good. Thank you. That's not um, just like, ha ha, you're my co-host, I'm laughing. That's actually really funny. So, so here's how Mr. Useless um, coughed up a run tonight. Um, he gave up back-to-back singles um, to start the ninth and then walked the bases loaded on four pitches and then hit the next batter. Sure, why not? We'll mix it up a bit. Variety's the spice of life, man. I, why, why? I mean – Edwin Diaz has lost more games. Okay, anyway. Um, well, let me just say that Pete Alonso's due, and he's up. Um, we we well, will divert to that as it goes. But so the, I will expl- if he hits a game-tying two-run homer right here, I will certainly ex- not be able to contain myself. But the odds are against it. I'm, I'm calling it right now. You're hearing it here first. All right, so Tata, what, what's the deal with this nomination, which I gather – I've not been following this closely, but I gather it's controversial for other reasons, but we have some vacancy issues. Um, so Anthony Tata um, – who, among other things, once called President Obama a terrorist leader, because, um, you know, that's, that's what we want in our senior people, um, had been the Trump administration's nominee um, basically to be the Pentagon, the chief policy, right? The deputy secretary for policy and yeah, planning. Yeah, that's a very title? important position. Yes. Um, basically, like the head policy Under, guy. Undersecretary for policy. Or- Undersecretary. I feel embarrassed. I should know the answer to this, but, you know, it, I'm tired. Um, by the way, Alonzo struck out. Game over. Of course. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, he, was a, he was already a controversial nominee. His nomination hearing before the Senate Armed Services Committee um, was scheduled for today. Um, and it was canceled very abruptly at the last minute. Um, and, you know, there were statements coming out of both Chairman Inhofe and I think it's what, uh, Ranking Member Reed. Um, Right, basically saying like there are concerns from both sides, blah blah blah. Okay. Um, by the way, hey, look at the Senate actually exercising its advice and consent power. Who knew? Nice to see. Um, here's where things get trickier, right? So Tata has been um, serving in some amorphous senior advisor to Secretary Esper position since May, and so the question is, um, if the confirmation hearing is not going to go forward, um, what's going to happen to him? And one of the concerns that's been floated around sort of military Pentagon reporter Twitter, which, by the way, is a fantastic uh, Twitter, um, is that um, the Trump administration actually wants him to replace Esper and that they want to basically bump him up um, as acting secretary once they politely. It's like a Chad Wolf kind of scenario, like get the person confirmed to some other position, then immediately then put him up as an actor. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Or at the very least, and this is where I jumped in with my. Federal Vacancies Reform Act Kung Fu, at the very least, just name him the acting 
undersecretary for policy, um, right? If, if the Senate's not gonna confirm him, just make him the acting. Um, so here we come to one of my favoritely obscure provisions of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, which says one of the only things you can't do is name someone as an acting who's been nominated to hold that position on a permanent basis, unless, Bobby, they were already the next in line, like unless they were the deputy, um, because Congress was concerned um, that the, a president would try to create this like incumbency effect by nominating someone to the office, naming them the acting, and then you're basically asking the Senate to just sort of preserve the status quo when the guy has never been confirmed. Um, so for example, when Noel Francisco was nominated to be the Solicitor General, he had to step down as acting Solicitor General because he had not previously been the deputy, right? Mm -hmm. So right. there are sort of two separate Vacancies Act questions with Tata. The first is, can they just name him the acting undersecretary for policy? And the answer, I think, is no, because even though the statute was designed to make sure that you couldn't be nominated after you've been the acting, Bobby, it doesn't say um, it doesn't say once nominated. It, it doesn't say you can't be the acting once unless the nomination is withdrawn. It just says you can't be the acting once there's a nomination. Um, there's been a nomination, um, so I don't think he can be the acting undersecretary. Can he be the acting secretary? So he's not Senate confirmed to his current job, right? But early next month, he's going to hit the 90-day threshold um, under 5 U.S.C. 3345-A. Right. Um, and so then that brings us back to something we actually talked about forever ago, which is the interaction between the Federal Vacancies Reform Act and the DOD succession statute, which says, in the event of a vacancy in the office of the secretary, the deputy secretary is the acting secretary. We have a Senate-confirmed deputy secretary right now. Um, so, you know, all this is to say, I don't think we're done with the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. I think we're going to have some potentially awkward machinations at DOD in the coming days and weeks. So this all takes place against the backdrop of, of Esper sometimes towing the line with the White House, but then at other times seeming to, to, to buck the White House and clearly getting signals at one point the media was suggesting that Esper was on the outs. Hey, can I, a breaking update from Shane Harris following up on our same story from just a moment ago. Um, he tweets uh, the following, uh, Acting Secretary Chad Wolf has directed intelligence and analysis, so Office of Intelligence Analysis, has been directed to, quote, immediately discontinue collecting information involving members of the press, uh, close quote. So that's good. Well done. Um, um, so there you go. That story arose and maybe ended, maybe not. That that does have the sort of hallmarks of of somebody at intelligence analysis exercising bad judgment more than a sign of a new policy in which they're going after journalists. It seems like they're blowing that up pretty quick. Um, um, all right. I mean, good things are not going quick. This show's not going quick. We got to talk about our actual national security law case. That's it. We've got, we've got a ruling from the Second Circuit, sort of. Uh, an explanation of their opinion. Yeah, the Mets are out, by the way. So, I know I'm turning on the Lakers and the Clippers. Okay, so Hassoon, this this is a case we've talked about before. We don't want to go too far down the weeds, but the key elements are: this is uh, someone who had a it was a roughly 15 and 15 and a half year sentence, I believe, 188 months actually, 188 months um, on terrorism support charges. And then uh, he, he's stateless because he's not a Lebanese citizen, but he's from Lebanon, had been in the United States, 
was clearly removable, but where to was the question. Uh, it was proving difficult to figure out where to remove him to, and so the government sought to keep him in custody past the normal period of time beyond which you either have to be finished the removal or else you have to release the person under supervision. The government said, no, there's a couple of provisions in the immigration uh, statutes under, under 8 U.S. Code, including one that is a, a detention uh, of, of non-citizens scenario that had never been used before. It was created under the Patriot Act, but also one that is, is separate and similar to it, but separate. Uh, and under both these authorities, the government kept him in. He brought a habeas action. Um, it's awfully down in the weeds exactly what happened with the different arguments. But the Second Circuit, despite the fact that Hassoun now is in Rwanda, because over the past, I think about maybe maybe a week or so ago, they found a way to persuade Rwanda to take him. Um, he's out, but the circuit still issued this opinion on, on today, right? I think it was. It's, it's, it's worse than that. I mean, I, I actually think the Second Circuit did some really shady stuff here. Um, so the Hassoun was released, um, well, or I should say was removed, um, on July 21st. So what, that's last Tuesday, um, right? But Bobby, the government had told the Second Circuit um, that it was in the process of trying to finalize, basically, I think, an agreement with Rwanda, right? right. Or to, to sort of facilitate his removal before the Second Circuit ever ruled on the stay. Um, and so the Second Circuit, you know, the Second Circuit initially granted the stay um, on, I want to say, the 16th, um, knowing that the government was planning to remove him, right? And so the stay basically cleared the way for the government to remove him because the stay meant that, like, he would, he would remain in, in immigra immigration detention, right? Because it was a stay of his release into the United States. Um, the Second Circuit issued a stay on the, on the 16th, um, and then the Second Circuit said, and an opinion will be forthcoming. Then Hassoun is actually removed, which, you know, Bobby, I think, moots the case, right? I mean, right. Um, and the Second Circuit, nevertheless, issues a, uh, what, 25-page opinion this morning That's explaining that. why it granted the stay. Um, this strikes me as not just a surprising waste of judicial resources, but a problematic one because, you know, among lots of other things, the, the government um, effectively mooted the case. Right. And indeed, the government mooted the case after it had obtained relief, i.e. a stay. Um, Bobby, in Fed Court's nerd land, that's the classic fact pattern for what's called a Munsingware vacateur. Mm -hmm. um, right. Where, you know, a party is unable to continue to challenge what the adverse party is doing because the adverse party mooted the case on appeal. Um, right. Usually the proper response is to not to punish the adverse party, but not to allow them to benefit from the opinion that can't be challenged. Um, well, then you must have enjoyed the final line where they say, in the interest of judicial economy, any future proceedings on appeal shall be assigned to this panel. So let's talk about judicial economy. Okay, so <laughs> um, funny you mentioned judicial economy because we the Second Circuit, on that one? there's a little bit of chutzpah in invoking <laughs> judicial economy in this opinion. So. so as I think we mentioned, um, one of the complicating factors in Hassoun's case is that the government actually offered two different uh, sources of authority for his detention, right? One was right. this regulation that you mentioned, um, and the other was the never-before-used, you know, mandatory detention provision of the USA Patriot Act, Section 412. Yeah. Um, and one of the complications that we alluded to, I want to say, what, two or three weeks ago, is that 
the USA Patriot Act provision is quite explicit that although any district court can hear a habeas petition under the statute, all appeals must go to the D.C. Circuit, which has exclusive jurisdiction. And I want to quote the language over the petition, Bobby, over the entire petition. Yeah. Right. So even if there are other issues intermixed with it, which. Right. And so the, the very first part of this opinion is, to me, a terribly boring uh, sort of explanation as to why it's still proper for us to hear this one before they then go on to effectively do the merits well, it's, as, it's worse, under color of the TRO. It's the worse than that because, Bobby, this is a stay application. And right. so they're supposed to be applying the four traditional stay factors, right? The most important of which is likelihood of success on the merits. Well, to even get to that, they have to spend like seven pages deciding a novel question about their statutory jurisdiction that one, I don't think they get right. And two, even if they get right, doesn't fully address his case because it leaves them powerless to talk about the USA Patriot Act detention. Never mind that there's a pending stay application from the government in the DC circuit where the court clearly has the power to do both of these things. So I, I think it's all right. It's, it's clear. What's the upshot of all this? It's clear they really wanted to weigh in and disagree with the court on the merits of whether 8 U.S. Code Section 1231A6, which is the underlying statutory authority for the regulation that was the alternative grounds for the detention, the district court had said the regulation is not a proper interpretation of the statute. It's, kinda, it's, a, it's an admin law question. And they, they spend the bulk of the, the merits part of the opinion explaining why they disagree with that. By the way, I think they're right. I think that the district court had it totally wrong and that their merits analysis here is, I think, spot on. However, however, I think you're totally right that they shouldn't have been weighing in on this. Well, so, so there, are two, there are two problems. I, the, there's one thing you haven't addressed, and I think we're going to fight. Um, but the first problem is the jurisdictional question should have been reason enough to deny the stay. Yeah. Because a significant question as to jurisdiction weighs heavily against a likelihood of success on the merits, right? Um, but right. So there's that, in addition to Munting, where there's that. So there's, there's multiple reasons. Plus, and, there, plus as, I mean, but Bobby, I mean, I agree with you 100% that yes, they clearly wanted to reach the 1231A6 question. Um, there's a term that I like to use for judges who invent jurisdictional rulings to allow them to reach questions they lack the power to decide. I call it judicial activism. Um, all right, but but here's where. So I think I think it's a close call on the statutory question where they lost me. Right? It's it's I, I'm sufficiently like I think the analysis is sufficiently plausible. Although I still don't think you get to the stay standard. Right? Like the stay standard is likely right, yeah. to success. That's, a, on the that's a different matter. Right? But where they lost me is their due process analysis because I think the linchpin of the district court's um, ruling that. Uh, the regulation didn't authorize Hassoun's detention was that even if it was authorized by the statute, it violated the due process clause because it didn't provide him with a meaningful enough opportunity to contest the factual predicate. And what's really interesting and sort of dovetails so much with stuff you and I used to do all the time yeah, is the yeah, discussion starting at page 20 yeah. about what the appropriate standard of review is. Yeah, right. It process. is funny to see that, isn't it? It's like shades of the old uh, figuring out how habeas works in Gitmo. And, and the whole thing is about whether the right standard is uh, clear and convincing evidence or a preponderance of the evidence, um, right? Where I think you and I agree, right? A preponderance of the evidence means 51% of the evidence. More likely right? than not. 
and clear and convincing means somewhere closer to like three quarters, right? Somewhere like, on the, I, I always, I hate to do the numbers on, I just say it's, it's stronger. It's gotta right. be stronger. Okay. So the, um, the, the court, the, the, the panel says that um, there's substantial reason to doubt the district court's conclusion the regulation is invalid because it does not explicitly incorporate the clear and convincing evidence standard and the government's correspondingly likely to prevail. Like the court, and part of how the court says all of this is by citing the DC Circuit cases where the DC Circuit adopted not just a preponderance standard, right, but was actually quite critical of the government for not arguing for even less. Here's where they lost me because the DC Circuit cases ought to be inapposite because all of those cases are predicated on the proposition that the detainees had no due process rights. Whatever else we think of Hassoun, Hassoun has due process rights. And so, so we might just, so Hamdi v. Rumsfeld is one of the cases that's in the analysis here where the guy did have due process rights, famously. And O'Connor doesn't citizen. say what the standard is. She just says it has to be more than some evidence. No, but I'm, I'm, I'm making the point that they're, t so they're talking there about a citizen. And as you just said, it, it, it certainly isn't a clear and convincing evidence standard. The court here on page 22 is talking about why the preponderance standard is the right one. It's relying on Hamdi. That all, and, then, and then it does go on to talk about the D.C. Circuit jurisprudence from the subsequent habeas cases, which true involve persons who don't have a clearly recognized due process claim yet. Although I think you and I both actually agree that they, by extension of Boumediene, they probably do actually have due process rights. I've never thought it would follow that if the courts would finally just say as much, that what would happen then is they'd have to revisit all the fact finding in the habeas cases to apply the clear and convincing evidence standard instead. I actually don't think they would. I think they would stay with preponderance of the evidence. I have to go back and look, but I actually, I thought there was, I thought Silberman in one of his concurring opinions literally said that the reason why, um, that that Hamdi was distinguishable, that, that the discussion of how much process was due by the plurality opinion in Hamdi was not binding on the D.C. Circuit because that, of course, involves someone with due process rights, implying that the D.C. Circuit's hostility to the clear and convincing standard, even the preponderance standard, was impelled by the then majority's view that the due process clause didn't apply. Uh, all I'm trying to say is, I don't think it nearly follows, right, that clear and convincing isn't the right standard, certainly not to the point where you can say on an application for an extraordinary stay that the government has met its burden of showing a likelihood of success on the merits on a question no one has decided. So I think that here we have to look at it also through the lens of some of the other factors, including especially the, the question of where the, the balance of uh, harms or anticipated harms are if the status quo is changed and specifically if the guy's released. And of course, if he's still in custody, then to me that makes it more sympathetic that they would take a few more liberties in reaching it. Because I do think that in a situation like this, if you take seriously the government's position, then it is a really huge deal to release this person inside the United States, um, given the claims about the danger he poses. Um, but of course, to say that is to highlight the silliness of having gotten to this issue at all because he's in Rwanda now. So and we so, can at least and agree so on we that. Have, we have an unnecessary opinion to defend an unnecessary stay based on a 
really implausible jurisdictional analysis that itself was unnecessary, given that the government could have gotten the same relief in the DC circuit where there's no jurisdictional question, in order to reach a merits analysis where the statutory part may be plausible, but the underlying constitutional analysis relies upon analogizing this case to cases that are, I think, quite distinguishable. Like, that's just a lot of nuts. I guess I rode that train with you about three quarters of the ride. <laughs> I bailed off into the, into the side of the side of the road there right before you got to the merits. But that's pretty good. We agreed on a lot, just not everything. And, I'll say, and, and, and if I may, I mean, all, as someone who spends a lot of time, more time than I ever like to admit, thinking about the state factors, right, and the four traditional state factors, um, if the opinion Bobby had been 25 pages, 18 of which were why this was a case where the harm equities. Right, but they didn't really come down on that. What? Yeah, they didn't really come down on that because they can't because he's not here. They spent three paragraphs on it. After I, know, I, like, th- I agree with you there. That's ridiculous. Right. And so and so it's just like, you know, I, I don't think I mean. Well, what it reads like is they really wanted to disagree on the key point of law, which is a big deal. And, you know, as I said earlier, I actually think I'm sympathetic to how they read it. Um, but they can't really do the analysis the way they need to and emphasize right. the thing that you should emphasize right. if you were still in custody he ain't and, and so now they're also going to provoke additional litigation because now the question is you know is there a mechanism or what's the appropriate mechanism for Hassoon's lawyers to now either seek you know further review of this terrible opinion or at least a Munsingwar vacateur right I mean I don't I don't think the panel's going to go for a Munsingwar vacateur because they're the ones who decided to file this opinion four days after it became moot in the first place um and so are they going to ask the Second Circuit, which never goes on bonk, to go on bonk for the sole purpose of issuing a Munsingware vacateur? Like, I just, it's, even if you are more sympathetic to the result than I am, it's, it, to me, it is, it is surprisingly bad behavior from a federal appellate panel. Yeah, it's, uh, well, I, I, I don't know enough about the, the initial part, the Fed courty issues that, that have you most concerned to know whether I should be as exercised. <laughs> That's how I want it. But sometimes, sometimes I think I should just stress you. So I do. I'll just go Aww, with you on that. Sometimes. Um, all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can't agree on everything. The show wouldn't work right that way. That's true. That's true. Um, one thing we do agree on is how great Watchmen was. Can we, can we talk fr- frivolity here for a minute before we close this out? Yeah. Although if we're going to do that, I also want to, I want to uh, end by saying why Rob Manfred must go. Okay, good. So we'll come back around to that. Well, let's touch base with uh, Watchmen, which got 26 nominations. Yeah. We sort of blew that one. We, 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 were, we were both very uppity. Like, how could Watchmen get passed over for the Emmys? It's like, uh, because they weren't eligible for the previous year? Yeah, let's see. Um, Part of the problem, Bob, is that, like, shows are on such weird cycles these days. Like, there, there used to be this classic cycle where you right. knew... Academic calendar sort of against, cycle. Like, you know, um, The Expanse or, like, Mrs. Maisel, right? Mrs. Maisel got a whole bunch of nominations. Like, wait, Mrs. Maisel hasn't been on for, like, nine months. Like, how is Matter, that? right. Well, let me ask you, give me your picks here. Okay, best comedy series, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Dead to Me, The Good Place, Insecure, Kaminsky Method, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Schitt's Creek, What We Do in the Shadows. There's some strong shows on that. And I know some of those you like. Where, where do you come down? I mean, the problem is, is that like, I think The Good Place is one of the smartest shows that has been on television in a very, very long time. I'm not sure it's like, I'm not sure it's, it, I, like, does best comedy series mean funniest? 
right? Because it's right, a, right. If it's the best writing, but it's not as like, funny as some. I, of the I don't think it's close that the that on overall quality of sort of writing and production and all that stuff, right? Yeah. That I think the Good Place is hands down the best show in that category, but it's by no means the funniest. Right, I agree with that. By all design, right. I mean, right? I mean, it's 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 a show about hey, moral it's philosophy. About more than it's that, not, it's not meant to be funny. I mean, it's it's it will, or it's not meant to be like haha funny. So what about this uh, best drama? You got Better Call Saul, The Crown, Killing Eve, Handmaid's Tale, Mandalorian, Ozark, Stranger Things, and Succession. How do you pick amongst those? Easy, Handmaid's Tale. You, really, really? That you think that's just hands down? I have never watched a show, Bobby, that like messed me up for days on end. I mean, just messed me up, like occupied my thoughts, like gave me chills, messed with my sleeping. Like I've never watched a television show that had that effect on me. And and Succession's a lot of fun, and some of those shows are are super are super fun. But oh my gosh, Handmaid's Tale. So, so how, how come Watchmen is Watchmen not included in that category because it's not a seasonal series, but instead yeah, right. It's a different. Aren't there different rules for like the 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 ser, the, ser, the the short serial versus like the yeah? Series? And I don't I don't love that. I mean, I get it, I guess. But so they're in a category with Little Fires Everywhere, Mrs. America, Unbelievable, and Unorthodox. I mean, all, Watchmen, all good... so Unorthodox is excellent. Um, Watchmen should win every category. Clearly, I mean, there's I think. That's a no-brainer. Um, we, we've had this conversation, right? You haven't watched Handmaid's Tale, and, and you don't want to because, you, you, because of the same reason why it, it totally messed with me. Um, not knowing exactly what the story's about, it's hard for me to know whether I agree with that Well, Because as I recall, we had a discussion some time ago about how... Your, I, did want I, to, I wanted to know from you uh, in a nuanced way, what, how nuanced is the treatment of religion? Right, and, 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 and I suspect that you and I would actually have somewhat different reactions to the show because of our different relationships with organized religion, right? Yeah, um, yeah, no doubt about that. And yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I want to make clear, like, I'm not refusing to watch it on no, no, that no, no, ground. No, 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 no. It was much more an observation that I just thought you and I, your reaction might not be the same as mine just because it played, you know, how, how it's sort of... It's going to play to concerns that are stronger in your mind than are in my mind. There you go. Absolutely. Well said. Uh, drama series actress. Uh, you got Jennifer Aniston in The Morning Show, Olivia Coleman in The Crown, uh, Jodie Comer in Killing Eve, Laura Lenny in Ozark, Sandra Owen oh Killing Eve, and Diane Euphoria. Truth is, I'm not actually interested if we don't have a Watchmen nomination. You know, I want to talk. I'm about just saying. I, mean, I I I love Olivia Coleman. Like I I don't I don't think the last season of The Crown was as good as the first two, but I I thought yeah. Olivia Coleman was fantastic. Um, I won't torture our listeners by continuing to pour through this. Uh, I didn't have a good list in front of me, and I don't have all the ones that various uh, Watchmen uh, people and creators were involved in. But I agree, basically. Let them win. Things like, like things like a lot of the technical categories, the editing. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, Watchmen is the to the Emmys. What Watchmen is to the Emmys this year, what Hamilton was to the Tonys, you know, two or three years ago. By the way, can I plug for you if you're not already watching it? Uh, Disney Plus has a behind the scenes. The I know. I'm, I want to get Karen to watch it with me. Let me tell you, we've been watching. It. It's great. It's great. It's really good. You learn so much about the craft. If you're like me, you don't really know this stuff gets done. Uh, they do a great job of elevating the artistry of these many different um, incredible, talented people. It was fun. 
Um, and it makes the, and it actually helps with the watching of Frozen 2, which I know you liked more than I did. I liked it okay. I think you liked it more. So apparently one of the things we learned from this is that like they wrote the plot last. <laughs> well, I wouldn't put it that way, but you learn some things about the sequencing of, yeah. of just when certain, certain things get decided, which is pretty cool. Now you wanted to end on a different note. Well, so actually, I also forgot one thing. I want to also do a plug, which is I got in the mail today a book I am terrifically excited about. I bet um, I can predict what you got. Okay. Is it, uh, is it the Paradise book? It is. I'm excited to read this too, based on what I heard uh, Ben Witt is saying on Rational Security about what it was about. I hadn't paid close attention. This is um, so, it sounds I mean, this, amazing. I, I described the book to Karen and she was like, wait, did you write this book? I'm like, no, Michelle, right your alley. Michelle wrote it because Michelle is better than me. So um, Michelle Paradis, who, is, who actually has been on this podcast um, yes, um, and, and who is, I think, best known to the national security community as one of the civilian uh, defense lawyers in the military commissions. She's argued multiple cases in the DC circuit in that capacity. Um, Michelle has a, a brand new book out um, a popular press book um, called The Last Mission to Tokyo, um, The Extraordinary Story of the Doolittle Raiders and Their Final Fight for Justice. And what I love about the book and why I'm so excited is, you know, I think a lot of us, Bobby, have this sort of loose historical knowledge that there, that there was a Doolittle Raid and what the Doolittle Raid was. Um, the raid itself is actually a, not a large part of the story, right? Michelle's very focused on what happens to the raiders who end up in Japanese custody, some of whom get tried and executed for war crimes. And then what happens to the Japanese soldiers who are responsible for that afterwards? So it's actually a yeah, really- that's very cool parallelism. Yes, it's a, like this super sophisticated, interesting story um, about military justice in wartime through the specific lens of the sort of the Pacific theater during World War II. Um, and, you know, as I think you know, I mean, I wrote my- you know, undergrad thesis on the war crime shots after World War One. The Tokyo trials have always figured prominently in my legal scholarship. My one of my first big law review articles was about the Supreme Court cases, um, where a bunch of the Class A war criminals at the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal tried to get the Supreme Court to step in, um, calling in Hirota versus MacArthur. So I am super excited. When we're done, I'm going to read the book. Um, oh, absolutely! But I can't resist because right before we came on, right right before we we started recording tonight. Um, ESPN posted the story that the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred, um, <laughs> has announced that starting on Saturday, you know, just a week and a half into the season, um, all games in double headers will be seven innings. <laughs> and is that, is that being, did he say this is for uh, social distancing sort no. of? No, I think the it's idea just like these, this is just too long. Baseball's not a. This, no, this I, I think it's to reduce the strain. So, so I think what Manfred is doing is because of what's happened with the Marlins and the Phillies. Yeah. Um, right. He is trying to reduce. He, it, it is becoming increasingly clear that there are a bunch of teams who have to play uh, an unusually uh, high number of double headers. If, oh, I see. If so he's trying to reduce the wear and tear from that. Yeah. So to reduce the wear and tear. Um, now, mind you, you know, given the state of the Mets bullpen. I'm perfectly happy with the Mets playing. Right. Seven Can we, yeah, look, this is actually going to have some weirdly sort of like old fashioned effects of eliminating a lot of the strategizing that goes on with the constant swapping of relievers. Well, the same thing has already happened with no, with the DH and the three batter minimum, but, right. but I just want to say like, I understand the impulse. Um, the season is underway. Stop changing the rules <laughs> while pretty. the season is underway to me it's like the it's like the ultimate it's the ultimate evidence that 
it's not quite a real season at all, right? Um, it's, it's a season that could go away in the blink of an eye as the Marlins, you know, potentially foreshadowed. And, and so I feel like they're just willing to try whatever. But, like, I mean, if, if one of your responsibilities as the Major League Commissioner is to be a steward for the integrity of the game, like, I understand that there's a lot of stuff going on. And I understand that, like, there are reasons why you're making all these accommodations. But stop messing with the, the, the in-game rules when games, have, when games that count have already been played. Like, just I'll stop. get upset when they change them in the midst of an actual game. I mean, that's where we're heading at this point. Like, oh, hey, now um, that might make baseball interesting. You know, All what? right, <laughs> starting right now, there's a man on first and second, and we're reversing the flow of the bases. Those guys are now in scoring position. Oh, uh, uh, was it wrong way, Pearsall? What Jimmy Pearsall <laughs> once right ran and ran the wrong way. Um, it's like so, what, on the, they put, he pulled a Jim Marshall. I think he, he I don't know if he, I think he just no. I, I think he circled the bases backwards. Like I think he he ran the first, second, third, and home on a homer, but he did it backwards. Um, no, like facing in the wrong direction. So this allows me to, to close with one of my favorite Justice Jackson quotes um, at, because it's a perfect illustration of the importance, Bobby, of procedural regularity and procedural fairness. Um, so Jackson says, I think in his descent in Mazai, um, right, one of the, the entry fiction cases from the 1950s, um, he says, I would rather live in a world with Soviet substantive rules and American procedural rules than a, a system, a system with Soviet substantive rules and American procedural rules, than American substantive rules and Soviet procedural rules. Um, like, I can take harsh substantive rules as long as they're fairly applied and administered versus, like, noble, great substantive rules that are applied in a completely unpredictable, irrational way. I thought it's one of the most profoundly pithy summaries of the importance of, of, of regular order um, that I think appears in the U.S. reports. That's actually very useful. When I when I used to at least spend more time thinking and teaching and speaking about detention law, I would always put up a slide with an X and a Y axis, and one of them was the relative breadth of the substantive grounds to detain, and then the other one was the relative precision of the combination of procedural and evidentiary rules, and pointing out that you don't you can't describe a system if you only know one of those axes. You have to know them both, and you have to plot accordingly. I'm sure there's a z-axis in there somewhere, but we have stayed up late. We still got to get this thing posted, so let's call it a night. <sighs> Who knows what tomorrow brings, Steve? I'll just say, you know, tomorrow, um, um, tomorrow marks 20 weeks with no daycare. Um, tomorrow's certainly not going to bring any relaxation then. No, although we have a date, August 17th. I saw that. They went out today, right? The Last, uh, last week, but you know, we'll we'll see if that holds. I mean, they're they're dropping like flies. So well. something tells me. I mean, something tells me that bringing fifty thousand students back to campus may not do wonders for our ability to suppress the spread of of coronavirus in Austin. You know, uh, I think we're going to find out what exactly it does in about exactly <laughs> four weeks. Well, it'll take a few weeks after that to know. I was going to uh, say, yeah. All right. All right. He is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. Apparently, I'm especially sassy on Twitter lately. Uh, we are together at NSL Podcast. Um, all I can say is uh, the Mets bullpen sucks. Um, fortunately, July is almost over. Um, stay safe out there. Adios.